My name is Luke. I am a pastor member. I serve in the leadership team here at Renewal. Every once in a while I get to share in the teaching. Today is one of those days. And today is one of those days because our lead pastor, Pastor Derek and Kaylee, they are expecting a baby any hour now. So, yeah, we, yeah, that's awesome. So we're going to pray for them before we get into the sermon. Does that sound good? If, if, if it doesn't feel weird to you, extend an arm and uh, just toward them and let's pray over over this baby. Lord, we recognize that every life is a gift from you. Every conception is a miracle. And so we pray plainly <laughs> to the God of this miracle, to the creator of life, that you would be overseeing this, uh, knitting together this baby boy, uh, overseeing the labor and the delivery and bringing health and, um, and strength and, and um, peace and goodness over this whole process. And we ask these things in your name because you are totally trustworthy. Amen. Thanks. You guys can, can be seated. We are, as you may know, in the middle of a series on the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is this little letter, um, six chapters long in the New Testament from a church leader in the first century. His name was Paul, and he wrote letters frequently to churches around uh, uh, the then-known world, around the Roman Empire. Uh, Ephesians is one of those letters, and it's a special letter. A lot, of, a lot of the letters were super specific toward their context. Ephesians is specific, but it's also a pretty broad declaration of Christian doctrine, of what it is that we believe. And so it's a great letter for us as a church to read. And we've been in that the last few weeks with Pastor D. Um, today we are starting chapter two. And as I was preparing uh, for this, for chapter two, I, I just kept reading through these, these verses and it made me recall this story of this guy named Steve Callahan. I don't know if you've heard of him. His story was big. Uh, 20 years ago or so, but Steve Callahan, when he was 29 years old, 1982, 1982, Steve Callahan left the Canary Islands in a 20-foot boat that he designed and built himself. He was an experienced sailor even in his 20s, and he had this goal. He was going to uh, go across the Atlantic solo in a, in a boat that he built. Um, and so he left, and then just four days later, while he was asleep in the middle of the night, he woke up to a tremendous bang. A whale had collided with his boat and cracked it open. Um, it was sinking fast. He barely escaped into an inflatable life raft with his life and uh, sat there. And as he sat there in the six-foot life raft, he was 2,000 miles from the closest piece of land. And it dawned on him all at once. All of his experience came to a head, and he was like, I know that I am dead. There's no way out of this thing. A six-foot life raft is not going to do the trick. And I, I thought of that because Steve Callahan was desperately imperiled, and nothing short of miraculous rescue would save him. Now, when, what Paul is getting at in Ephesians chapter 2 is just s such a, a thing as this. It's, it's this kind of circumstance. Nothing short of miraculous rescue will save humanity from peril. That's the theme of what we look at in Ephesians chapter 2. And I want you um, to, as we read this together, we're going to start with the scripture. As we read it together, think in terms of these categories. We've got two big chunks to these 10 verses. We've got peril and we've got rescue. And while we're reading, try to identify them. Make a mental note, make an actual physical note in your Bible if you want to. Peril and rescue. Okay, I know I just had you sit down, but you're going to stand up again. Ready? Set. If, if you can, stand if you're able. Let's read um, Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 1 through 10. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Paul, to the Ephesian church, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God... Being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You guys may be seated. I got to confess, when Pastor D said, hey, can you do this, this week's sermon? I mean, I just don't know when the baby's going to come. Jeal- I mean, secretly I was like, yeah, it's the best passage yeah. in all of Ephesians, <laughs> right? I mean, this, this is it. This is the hinge point, not just of Ephesians, but of all of, the, of human history. This is what's going on. And we're going to look at this. We're going to unpack this. And we're going to see how, how Paul describes this, this, this phrase. Did you notice the key phrase? I hope so, because I tried to enunciate it clearly. Did you notice the, clear, the, 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 the phrase, the only phrase that's repeated verbatim twice? What is it? You guys can answer. This is Renewal Church. For by grace you have been saved. He repeats it twice. For by grace you have been saved. This is the, is the keystone phrase, and it's the phrase that we're going to use to unpack the rest of this passage. We're going to use it. We're going to see. Actually, we're not even going to use the whole phrase. We're going to just sing, uh, zone in on two words, right? Grace and saved. Because if we can see how this passage describes saved and how it defines saved, if we can see how this passage describes and defines grace, then man, we, we get the rest of it. It, it will become clear to us. We, we, we will have the text illuminated before us and we're going to use the passage itself to define itself, okay? Grace and saved. We're going to start with saved. And the reason is because the first three verses, if you notice, there's really two main chunks in this passage. There's verses 1 through 3 that describe this desperate peril that people are in. And there's verses 4 through 10 that describes this radical intervention by God. Did you notice that? This has been described time and again by, by people in the church for centuries. This, this, these, these 10 verses. They're like, look at this. You, you've got these, this really radical comparison and in, in contrast. People have said it's the diagnosis, verses 1 through 3, and the cure, verses 4 through 10. People have said, you've got death, verses 1 through 3, and life, verses 4 through 10. You've got by nature, verses 1 through 3, and by grace, verses 4 through 10. Do you see? You've got peril and rescue. And it's nothing short of that. If, if you don't get anything else today, here's a key phrase. This passage makes it clear that salvation in Christ is nothing less than rescue from certain peril. Let me say it again because this, we just underestimate 
what saved and grace mean. We, we, we just think of them as so lowly, not, like, not on purpose, just subconsciously. This passage makes it clear that salvation in Christ is nothing less than rescue, radical rescue from certain peril. Got it? This, this is why Callahan's story is so instructive for us. I mean, we can look at a 29-year-old guy in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean in a rubber boat, and we're like, this guy is dead. He's a dead man. It's, it's clear, right? That, that is the kind of image that Paul is striving to, to project here in verses one through three. And we will not, we will not, we will never, ever, ever understand what it means to be saved in God if we don't first understand and really appreciate the profound peril that we are all in. We, we, are, we are in a dinghy in the middle of the ocean. And, and that's what's going on here. Salvation, salvation is not, being saved is not turning over a new leaf breaking a bad habit, building a new good habit, finding a good church. It is not uh, um, discovering your purpose. It is not giving up a vice. It is not having a spiritual experience. Salvation is not being true to yourself. Salvation is one thing. It is being saved from certain peril. You are dead and you need rescue. That is Paul's message here, and it is, he, he, he is overwhelming in his argument. As an example, um, there is a, a, an organization called the National uh, Organization of, uh, what is it? I'm going to have to find it in my notes. National Outdoor Leadership School. National Outdoor Leadership School. This is really interesting. These guys just train people on, how to, on survival skills in the wilderness, and then they train rescue teams around the country, around North America, for search and rescue in the most hostile environments, right? National Outdoor Leadership School. And one of the things that they've done over the years is, is, is they, they've stepped back and said, what if, rather than only training survival skills, we can get at the bottom of what creates these scenarios in which people are so imperiled in the first place? Like, what if we can, we can pre, get, get ahead of the curve and, and talk about what causes the accidents? And so they created, through their research, this thing called the accident matrix, right? And it is so simple. It's amazing. It took years of research, and they came up with, there's three main points to the accident matrix. Beliefs, conditions, and actions. So they say, beliefs, for example, uh, a climber on, on a rocky scree slope might believe that he has the power to uh, stop himself if he begins to slip. It may or may, may not be true, that belief, right? But there's a belief there. He has a judgment about that. Conditions, this is a thing like uh, like ice, like weather, like altitude, like time of day, those kinds of things, right? Actions, deciding, um, an action would be like deciding whether or not to rope up for a particular climb. It would, it would be deciding what time of day to leave. It would be, decide, it would be um, any kind of decision based on the weather, right? So you got beliefs, conditions, and actions. Now listen, what the National uh, uh, School of Outdoor Leadership has said is that if one of these begins to go sideways, it can quickly spiral into a life and death situation. If two of them go wrong, it, peril is a certainty. And if three of them go wrong, death is imminent, right? That, that's, how, that's how important these things are. Listen, when we look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Paul is saying that the beliefs, the conditions, and the actions of humanity have all three gone wrong. Peril is certain. Death is imminent. That's his whole point. Look, let's read it again. Um, if you can throw it up on the screen again even. 
verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. What is that? It's beliefs. It's presuppositions. It's philosophies that we all hold, often subconsciously, about how the world works, about what we really need, about what will make us happy, right? And, and, and what Paul is describing here is that the people who are dead men and women walking are those who are just carried along by whatever is in fashion in the world, these beliefs. And he continues, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This word sons, just so you know, I know that we rightly have a lot of sensitivity in our culture right now with the Me Too movement um, about gender. In the Greek, this is sons and daughters, right? So sons and daughters of disobedience. This is everyone apart from Christ. It, what Paul is describing here is the conditions. This is the environment. This is the climate, right? The climate in which we live, frankly, it includes a spiritual conflict there is, there is a reality to the spiritual conflict that is alive and well and there are demonic forces that are actively at work tugging on your heart to lead you to death. That is what Paul is saying. Now, I don't know if you believe in the devil or not, that he's actually real. I do. I hope that you do. Paul does. The Bible does. It, 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 it goes out of its way to describe this spiritual reality. The conditions in which we find ourselves is spiritual conflict. Paul goes on, verse 3 among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Actions. Actions. We all once lived in, according to the passions of our flesh. This flesh, this, this idea of flesh, sometimes the Bible uses the word sinful nature, the term sin, sinful nature. This, this is the idea that we just do what we want when we want. That the, the, kind of the, the subconscious question we're asking all the time with our decisions is, do I like that? Do I want it? Does it feel right? This is the person who is a dead man or woman walking. Beliefs, conditions, actions. We have the threefold enemy that is presented in the Bible over and over and over again. We have uh, our sinful nature, we have the philosophies of this world, and we have Satan. The threefold enemy that is leading actively people to death. Humanity is in peril. Listen, the human predicament is grave and it is comprehensive. That is Paul's argument. It is grave. That means, that means you're dead, right? It is comprehensive. That means there's not like a side exit somewhere. It's, it's comprehensive. It's, it's, it's taken over everything. What we're touching on here is what the Christian doctrine of depravity is, right? This, this idea that sin has tainted everything. Not, not all people are equally depraved. The depravity comes in a, it, it, there's a spectrum, but everyone, everyone, everyone is tainted by sin. It affects everything in such a way that it leads to death. Um, the Bible scholar and pastor, late Bible scholar and pastor named John Stott, he's excellent. Uh, he, he says that these verses, these three verses, verses one through three, quote, plumb the depths of pessimism about humanity. Brutal. But he's right. He's right. We have here, we, our eyes can be opened to the tangible reality of spiritual deadness. Listen, 
Spiritual deadness is so real that it inevitably leads to bodily death. Do you see? We can't just like say, well, that's like ephemeral, that's ethereal, that's something out there somewhere, you know, feely-weely. No, no, no. Spiritual deadness leads to bodily death. It leads to judgment and separation. Judgment under God and separation from God forever. We are in peril, Paul says. And then it mentions also this idea, these this sons and daughters of wrath, that we are under God's wrath. And this is a hard word, wrath. I appreciate deeply that it is in the Bible, that the Bible is just so plain with us. And here's why. God's wrath is not, it has nothing to do with bad temper or spitefulness or, or animosity or revenge. God's wrath as presented in the, in the Christian scriptures is his perfect, righteous, settled, implacable antagonism to evil. And thank God he has it. Right? I mean... If all of us, whether we know it or not, subconsciously we have experienced this relationship. We're going to touch on God's love here in a minute. The passage does. We've had an actual experience of how wrath and love are connected. We may not know it, but let me help you. Have you never been deeply angered by watching somebody you care about and love do something that's self-destructive? That's wrath. Have you never been outraged at the injustices in our world when you turn on the news? In our city, that's wrath. Wrath and love go together. You feel that. You are stirred up to indignation because you love and care. Why would we ever want a God whose love is so thin and superficial that he would be unmoved by evil? Thank you, God, for your wrath. Thank you, God, that, that, that you want, that you step in to this mess that's described in verses one through three. This, this perilous state in which we find ourselves. Callahan, on a raft, 1,800 miles from the nearest sliver of land in the Caribbean, he did not need a new career. He did not need to build his self-esteem. He did not need to believe in himself. Callahan needed rescue. Do you see? This is Paul's argument to the church in Ephesus. This is the Bible's argument to the church in Chicago. You need rescue from death. Nothing less will do. Anything else will leave you still stranded and abandoned. What we see in Ephesians is certain peril. So certain that the words that Paul uses, he uses to call the men and women in this state dead already. You know, we have that same expression, dead men walking if they're on death row. The fact, the simple fact is, is that everyone is a dead man or woman walking. We are all on death row. We need intervention, radical intervention and rescue. It's the only hope. Point one, Paul makes so well, 
Remember, we're looking at two words, saved and grace. Point one, saved, we need salvation and not not something trivial or, or churchy or religious or something. No, 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 we need to be saved from death. Point two, grace. This passage is tremendous. Look at verse four again. But God. (laughs) But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Perhaps, not perhaps, certainly, there's somebody in this room, somebody's, who has been hurt by a church in the past. Almost certainly, uh, that hurt has been precipitated by a lack of grace in that church. And I'm saying that because, uh, for two reasons. One is to say, if that's the case, if that's part of your story, uh, being hurt by a church, I am sorry. There is no excuse There's no excuse because what we see here is a church that abounds with grace. We we will see it explicitly. The the church, it's the church's role to put God's grace on display in the world. We'll see that in chapter three. And what we see here is God's grace abounding, abundant, overwhelming, overwhelming all of the evil and peril that we see in verses one through three. God, rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Uh, Verses one through three is a vivid picture right, of humanity's condition. Verses four through 10 is a vivid picture of Jesus's, of God's intervention. Uh, we, we read earlier uh, John Stott, right, plumbing, verses one through three, plumb the depths of humanity, pessimism, of pessimism about humanity. Verses four through 10, rise to the heights of optimism about God. It's magnificent. This, this grace, this, this thing that's, that's happening, it's precisely, I don't want us to miss this, it is precisely understanding, b- receiving, and, and, and beginning to grasp the, the gravity of the peril that confronts us. It is precisely that that helps us to understand and grasp the gravity of the grace of God. If we get this one wrong, if, if I just need a little adjustment here and there, I am never going to appreciate the radical grace of God. But if I understand that I am dead, I am lost on a raft in the ocean, then I begin to, conce- I begin to perceive with wonder the grace of God, the, ma- the majestic awe. How can this be, the almighty creator stepping in? That is what Paul wants to do here. Again, Callahan is a great example. When he first was lost the first few days, he was out on the ocean for something like 72 days barely surviving on scraps of fish that he was able to kind of pull together with this little handmade thread and, and needle thing. Um, and, but when he was first out there, the first few days, he, he kept a journal. And, and in the journal, you can see he kind of alternates, like, like he's got multiple personality disorder or something, between like just raging against his, the, the, the place that he finds himself on the one hand, and on the other hand, just consigned to depression about where he finds himself, right? And then, in the journal, it begins to change. His tone changes through his writing. And he he says, here, I want to read some of the excerpts. He says, I have had a lot of time to think. Yeah, I'd say that's true. I've had a lot of time to think. I regret every mistake I've ever made. I am divorced. I have failed at human relationships. 
generally. That's a big statement. I have failed at business, and now I even fail at sailing. Do you see, the one thing that Callahan thought that he could do best at ended in epic failure. Callahan, um, his eyes were beginning to be opened to the reality of the condition within. The condition without was apparent. He was, he was in the middle of the ocean, and that condition allowed him to see the condition of his heart a little bit better. Do you see what I mean? We, we are so at peril that it is both external and internal. We need rescue in, in, in every way, three-dimensionally, 360. We need complete and utter rescue. And, and, and when Callahan begins to perceive this and begins to understand, and little by little his eyes are opened, what is happening here? It is grace. Stepping in to the situation. When, when, when that whale hit his boat, he thought that that was the biggest problem, but he began to see that it wasn't his biggest problem. There was something else going on. Callahan wasn't just lost at sea. He was lost at life. <laughs> he continues. Days later, and days later after uh, still at sea, uh, his tone continues to change. He wrote, I am constantly surrounded by a display of natural wonders. It is beauty surrounded by ugly fear. It is a view of heaven from a seat in hell. In these moments of peace, deprivation seems a strange sort of gift. My plight has given me a strange kind of wealth, the most important kind. I value each moment that is not spent in pain, desperation, hunger, thirst, or loneliness. Even here there is richness all around me. And as I look out of the raft, I see God's face in the smooth waves, his grace in the fish swimming, and feel his breath against my cheek as it sweeps down from the sky. Uh, A couple days later, he saw a rainbow, and he wrote this, I feel as if I'm passing down the corridor of a heavenly vault of irreproducible grandeur and color. What changed Certainly not his external conditions. They had worsened. Callahan is being confronted with grace. This is nothing that he was, could ever possibly be able to accomplish. There's something strange at work here. This is totally counterintuitive. If anything, Callahan should be disintegrating. I don't know uh, whether or not Callahan is a Christian, calls himself a Christian, I don't know. What I do know is his journal increasingly has prayer and even worship. And I have to say, it is because of grace. I mean, in his own words, he is in the seat of hell with a view of heaven. This is what Paul is saying. What, what humans, what we humans, me and you, what we've created for ourselves is hell on earth. And God wants us to get, get a view of heaven. He wants to shake us out of it. He wants us to see what, only, what he can accomplish, what only he can accomplish, rescue. Grace defined, you know, sometimes it's good, again, to think about Callahan because he didn't do anything for this. I mean, it just was like happening to him. He was confronted with this reality and this grace. Sometimes I hear uh, somebody say, uh, uh, still, this happens fairly regularly, something like, well, doesn't he just deserve a little grace? Have you heard a phrase like that? 
The Bible knows no such conception of deserving grace. It is oxymoronic. You cannot deserve grace. Grace, by definition, is undeserved favor. If you deserve it, it is not grace. The definition of grace is what Paul is getting here. He goes out of his way to list the human condition and then talks about what God does. Why? Because he's illustrating what grace is. Here's a two-word definition, unmerited favor. It, it's, it's, it's radical. A king, a good king, a merciful king, might, might pardon a traitor, maybe. Only a loving king invites the traitor to sit beside him on his throne. That is grace. The traitor, the guy who betrayed the country, sitting on the throne of the country. This is what is portrayed here in this passage. It is so radical. The rescue is so complete. We, we have grave and comprehensive circumstances. We have radical and comprehensive rescue. I love verse four, don't you? Look at that again. Because of the great love with which he loved us. (laughs) He loved us because he loved us. What? Because of the great love with which he loved us. I love this. Uh, Even the description of God's love is it gets that kind of grace. Like, like his grace flows out of his character because of the great love with which he loved us. Imagine, for example, you have a young man who is madly in love with a woman. He plans to marry her. He can't stop talking about her. You ask, why do you love her? He, he's like, I can't wait to tell you, right? Her hair, her beauty, her touch, her intellect, her, her compassion, her mercy, her, her time, her just, just being with her, right? He goes on and on. I love her. You know what the young man never says? I love her because I'm a loving person. That is exactly what God says. He loves because he loves. It is only, this this kind of attribute can only be attributed to God. It's it's autocatalytic, it's self-generated love. There's no reason, there's, there's no explanation, there's, there's nothing that's going on here that, that, that is coming out of verses one through three that says, love those guys. And that's what's happened, that's what God does. He loves, because of his great love, he loved. That's the reason. And this, this reason comes down all through the scriptures over and over and over again. Have you read um, uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones's children's Bible? I think so, our church sometimes shares it with parents. It is so good. There's this word in the Old Testament called hesed. And, it, and it's this idea of love, but our English translation, love, doesn't quite do it justice. So Sally Lloyd-Jones, in her translation for children, she says this for hesed. She says, God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever, love. It's a great definition. That is what's happening from God. This disruption, this radical rescue from peril that steps in in verse four. He loves because he loves. This theme is throughout the scripture. He created, why, why, why does the almighty God create? He loves. And Moses, to to the people, God, through Moses, to the people of Israel, in Deuteronomy 7, he goes out of his way to name all of the reasons that he did not select them as a nation. He's like, it's not because you're the smartest, it's not because you're the greatest, it's not because you're particularly good at anything, it's because I love you. I love you because I love you. 
It goes on. King David, he is just so astonished with God's love. He, he, he can't get it out, so he writes dozens of poems and songs. What, what, is, what does somebody who is astonished by love do? They turn into a romantic and write songs. That's what David did. And he says, he says things like, God, your love is better than life. Who talks like this? He says, God, it is your loving kindness that leads me to repentance. And John, the, the, the disciple of Jesus who walked with Jesus, when he wrote his letters, his epistles that are recorded in the New Testament, he put it simply three words, God is love. He couldn't, he couldn't think of a better way to say it. He loves because he loves. <laughs> he loves us because he loves us. Receive that. Say, think of that right now. He loves you because he loves you. Yes. yes, me too. I like you. <laughs> this love on display, it doesn't stop. It doesn't stop with um, forgiveness, does it? Did you notice? Verses five and six. Forgiveness would be radical. I mean, forgiveness would be crazy. But it doesn't stop there. Verses five, even when we were dead, in our trespasses, he made us alive. That is, he raises us from the dead. Verse six, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Last week, chapter one, ends with this, Paul, with, with this prayer from Paul. It's an incredible prayer. If you haven't read it or if you weren't here last week, read it again this afternoon, do it. This incredible prayer that goes out of its way to describe the glory and majesty of Jesus risen, ascended, and seated on the throne. Here, a few verses later, Jesus, uh, Paul takes all of those same attributes, risen, ascended, and seated, and applies them not to Jesus, but to you. Imagine. <laughs> this love, this grace. Our condition, church, our condition apart from Christ is far more grave than we would care to admit. Our rescue in Christ is far greater than we could ever imagine. Do you see? Where does this leave us? So what? Paul lets us know. He offers some very practical, some very practical counsel, and I want to leave that with you. He says, Remember. He says, remember. Basically, whenever he says, this is not by your works, this is a gift from God so that no one can boast. Listen, if you're a Christian in this room and if you ever find yourself thinking or speaking something like, how could she ever do that? Or how could he ever be so dumb or foolish or blind? Or how could, I, I could never be that selfish. If you ever find that language in your heart, you have forgotten from where you came. You were selfish and blind. You were verses one through three. Remember so that, no one, so that you don't boast. Don't be that church. If you are not a Christian, or if you don't know what you are, which is a fair point, it's probably pretty honest, then this, this same promise, this is a gift from God, this is for you. You know, there, there would be no way for you, there would be no way for you to really sit, like, like Steve Callahan was forced to do out in the middle of the ocean, to sit and consider, to ponder at length the reality of your mortality and the reality of your spiritual deadness, you, it would be impossible for you to do without being totally crushed and depressed if it wasn't for the reality 
that what you receive is a gift from God. It allows us to confront the reality. Do you see? If you're a Christian, remember from where you came. If you are not yet a Christian, if you're thinking about it, if you don't know, then consider and ponder and know that you can confront, you can get real with yourself because if the Christian scriptures are true, then it doesn't matter who you are, you're in. And finally, we have revel. Now, Paul doesn't use that word, revel, but in verse 10, it's an interesting way that he chooses to conclude this part of, the, of, the, of his teaching, right? Did you notice that? We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. When Callahan was rescued, yes, he was rescued. We have his journal. When Callahan was rescued, 72, 73 days after sea, I mean, he was on the brink of death. And um, what had happened is a fishing trawler noticed some seagulls who were circling, and they're like, well, where there are seagulls out in the ocean, there are fish. And there were fish circling around Callahan because they were all waiting to eat him, right? He just had schools of fish and shark all over the place. And the seagulls uh, it came to that, it came to the schools of fish, and the fishing trawler went out there and they saw Callahan. Now, this is what Steve Callahan did. This is amazing. He said, No, 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 I'm fine. There's more fish here than you'll ever normally get on a normal day. Go ahead and fish. I've been out here a long time anyway. Then you can pick me up. What? But that is exactly the person who is rescued by God. That is what they do. They don't say, finally, it's about time you came out here to pick me up. They don't, they don't get all high and mighty and self-righteous about what took you so long. No, no, no. They say, what is good for you? How can I help you to flourish? I'm going to go out and do good works in your name. That's what they say, and that's what, that's what Paul says here. If anyone is rescued, if any one of you have experienced the rescue from certain peril that is only found in Jesus Christ, you have good works prepared for you by God. Go out and do them. There's a, I want to leave you with these words. This is Emmanuel Sibomana. He was a, a pastor in Burundi in the 1930s and 40s. He wrote a hymn after reading Ephesians. And he was so overwhelmed by, by the, the, the power of this, by this idea of we're, we're seated with God, what? And that he wrote this hymn, and it was later translated into English. I want to read just two verses from it to conclude. He says, Oh, how the grace of God amazes me. It loosed me from my bonds and set me free. What made it happen so? It was his will, this much, this much I know. He set me at liberty. Now listen, my God has chosen me, though one of naught, to sit beside my king in heaven's court. Hear what my Lord has done. Oh, the love that made him run to meet his erring son. Oh, how the grace of God amazes me. Let me pray.